Thank you, Estelle, and thank you, Molly, and others who help with offertories. And today, and I think this is good to point out, we had a young man passing out the attendance booklets. Calvin did a very fine job. Thank you. And this past week, Amy, what was the name of that conference? Okay, and that was from what day to day? It was from Monday to Wednesday. And you had with you in attendance yourself and Lydia and others here? Who else? Okay, but we're very pleased. Amen? All right. Well, let's take our Bibles and continue with the reading of John 18. This is a fascinating portion. Let's stand together. John chapter 18, verse 28. Father, bless the reading of this, thy precious breathed out word, and let us see and sense, watch and observe the Master in a very difficult time. Teach us, we pray. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate, therefore, went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying to what kind of death he was about to die. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priest, delivered you up. To me, what have you done? Jesus answered, <clears throat> My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said, So, so you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Father, bless now this scripture and let us Hear your voice, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. 
You may be seated. John 18, where we left off, was with verse 12 last Lord's Day, and so we pick up at 12 through 14 briefly. Under cover of night, this horde of violent men led by the traitor who had eaten his bread arrested Jesus and having bound him, brought him to Annas, father-in-law of Caiaphas, who we are told was high priest that year. In truth, Annas was the true by lineage and Jewish law high priest. Yet the son-in-law of Annas had been established by Rome as high priest in violation of the Mosaic standard that a, a priest was a priest until the priest died, until the end of his life. Then, in 37 AD, Emperor Vitellius would depose Caiaphas and appoint Jonathan, son of Annas, as the new high priest, replacing Caiaphas. Such are the politics of evil government, then and now. It would seem that the house of Annas was close to the scene of the arrest And so it was convenient to take Jesus there. But additionally, there's evidence, this is fascinating, but evidence that the stalls in the temple that Jesus had overturned really belonged to Annas and his family. Hmm. Thus, no doubt, Annas used his position to arrange Jesus being brought to him first that he might gloat over the downfall of this presumptuous Galilean. It is horrific to contemplate the perception of Annas upon his death, remembering who he gloated over. Annas has been dead now 2,000 years, And unless he came to be in Christ, he has been in flames for 2,000 years. Hmm. But the reason the Spirit-breathed verses of 13 and 14 were given through John was to repeat this prophetic word by Caiaphas, who under the heavy hand of providence had spoken the words, It is expedient that one man die rather than the people. (laughs) Caiaphas performed at least one godly deed, though that involuntarily, predicting Messiah's death. This occurred first in John 11.50, where Caiaphas, with a real attitude of arrogance, says to his compatriots, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. John says then, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but because he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Hmm. Calvin, 
Thus God employed the foul mouth of a wicked and treacherous high priest to utter a prediction, even as God guided the tongue of the prophet Balaam, contrary to his wish, so that his mouth was controlled by God, causing him to bless the Israelites, though he had wanted to curse them. In the God-breathed-out words of 1152, it was God's purpose through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. That includes you. That includes me. And we have already been gathered into one body as the children of God who were scattered. <laughs> All praise to God for the marvel of his glorious abounding love from eternity past to eternity future for those gifted by him to Christ Jesus, our beloved Lord. Amen. Verses 15 through 16 of 18. 15 and 16. It's incredible, perhaps, though understandable, the adrenaline rush in Peter as his sword sliced off an ear and then the rebuke by Jesus. And yet we still find Peter physically following hard after the mob carrying his master. Calvin says there is no doubt that godly zeal was the motive inducing Peter to follow Christ. But since Christ had plainly declared that he spared and released Peter and the others, Peter, who was so weak, would have found it far better to groan in some dark corner than to go into the presence of men. <laughs> Be careful of zeal. Verses 17 through 18, chapter 18, verses 17 through 18, no sooner does Peter uh, present himself into the high priest's hall than it costs him dearly because upon stepping in, he's challenged by the slave girl keeping the door. You too were one of this man's disciples, she says. And when Peter stumbles so shamefully at the first step, the foolishness of his boasting is exposed because he, he denies it. Calvin says, a man filled not with fortitude but with wind promises that he will obtain an easy victory over the whole world. And yet no sooner does he see the shadow of a thistle than he immediately trembles. <laughs> Let us therefore learn not to be brave in any other than the Lord. It might be a right thing that you're doing, but it might be the wrong time. Listen to his guidance. Verses 19 through 21. Observe that Annas, the, the legitimate high priest, according to Jewish law, interrogated Jesus in a virtual trial that lacked legality. 
for Jewish law provided safeguards for the accused. One commentator cites some of these safeguards. One curious feature of legal procedure in the Sanhedrin was that the man involved was held to be absolutely innocent. Indeed, he was not even on trial until the evidence of the witnesses had been stated and confirmed. The argument about the case could only begin when the testimony of the witnesses was given and confirmed. And this is the point of the conversation Jesus has with Annas in verses 19 through 21. Jesus is reminding Annas respectfully, but reminding him that he has no right to ask him anything until the evidence of the witnesses has been taken and found to be harmonious. In this pre-trial interrogation, where clearly the accused was already judged guilty, is a major breach of Jewish law concerning the accused. But observe Annas' line of thought. Observe his line of thought. Verse 19, we are given insight into his thinking. He's interested in the success of Jesus. How large is his following and what subversive teaching is he giving to the masses? Calvin writes, our Lord Jesus Christ, having completely and faithfully discharged the office of teacher, does not enter into a new defense. But that he may not abandon the cause of truth, he shows that he was prepared to defend all that he had taught. Observe Calvin's comment of Christ discharging the office of a teacher. More on that in the doctrinal observations. Verses 22 through 23. A council is assembled in which the utmost gravity ought to have prevailed, and yet a single officer is so daring and presumptuous that in the midst of the judicial proceeding and in the presence of the judges, he strikes the accused, who was not found to be in any respect guilty. Here is a second major breach of Jewish law per the accused. But look at Christ. Christ's words are cool, they are calm, they are collected. Strike me across the face. <laughs> I don't know if you'd see cool, calm, and collected easily. But Christ is cool, calm, and collected. But observe what may be thought a contrast with what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek, remember? Calvin says on this question, I answer in Christian patience, it is not always the duty of him who has been struck to allow the injury done him without saying a word. But first, 
endure it with patience. Second, give up all thoughts of revenge and to endeavor then to overcome evil with good. Christ, this is Calvin, Christ means nothing else that each of us should be more ready to bear a second injury than to take revenge for the first. So that there is nothing to prevent a Christian man from expostulating, speaking to his defense when he has been unjustly treated, provided that his mind is free, free from rancor, bitterness, or resentment, and his hand free from revenge. Free from rancor and his hand free from revenge. Verse 23. John does not tell us what the face of Jesus looked like here, but I think I can see it. Jesus turns, answers. If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if what I said was right, why do you strike me? <laughs> A gentle answer is designed by God to turn away wrath. Verses 24 through 27. Annas then sends him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Well, the scene may still be the courtyard of Annas' house, or Annas and Caiaphas may have shared the same residence. Caiaphas is his son-in-law, in which case there might have been a common courtyard. And some have thought that, that Jesus was taken through the courtyard on the way to the wing where Caiaphas lived, and that this was the occasion for Jesus Suddenly to turn, the cock crows a third time, and Jesus, while walking, turns and looks Peter right in the eyes. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. In the midst of his speech, the crow. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Before a rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And this time Peter went where he probably should have gone first. He went out and wept bitterly. But Barclay comments here, and I think this is very, very helpful. I pray it touches your heart. Barclay says, it was the real Peter who protested his loyalty in the upper room. It was the real Peter who drew his lonely sword in the moonlight of the garden. It was the real Peter who followed Jesus because he could not leave his Lord alone. It was not who Peter wanted to be who cracked beneath attention 
and denied his Lord. And that is just what Jesus could see. The forgiving love of Jesus is so great that he sees our real person, our real desire, not our faithlessness. Jesus does not look at you the way you often look at yourself. You need to understand that. His blood has covered our sins, which are many, but kids, his mercy is more. Yeah. John 16, 26 and 7 again. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. The Father himself phileos you, tenderly affections you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. He wants you to feel the tender affection that he has for you. Verses 28 through 32, 18, 28 through 32. Thus Christ is led into the praetorium where Pilate comes out asking, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they respond, If, if he were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. Touché. Pilate says, because Pilate gets the point, you ain't got no charges. <laughs> Take him yourself, judge him by your law. But the Jews say, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Checkmate. Now verse 31 through 32 is important because the, the response of the Jews indicates that they were not permitted to put anyone to death, referenced their method of death, stoning. This would be their prescribed preference of capital punishment. And so we are told in verse 32, thus verse 32 points to the manner or kind of death he was to die. In fact, the Apostle John has emphasized throughout that the death of Jesus would not be by stoning, but would be by crucifixion. It has been prominent throughout. Twice before John records, Jesus escapes stoning, the end of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 10. Jesus himself speaks of, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself, but, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And the Jews stumble. How can the Son of Man be crucified? Jesus prophesied that he must be crucified. Caiaphas' determination to secure a crucifixion fulfilled the divine purpose. Why? Perhaps the explanation is in the curse pronounced in Deuteronomy 21, 23. 
Deuteronomy 21:23. And I quote, Now if a person has committed a sin carrying a sentence of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body is not to be left overnight on the tree, but you shall certainly bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is cursed of God. He who is hanged, so saith Mosaic prescription, he who is hanged is cursed of God under God's curse. Caiaphas would have seen this as a, a brilliant way to discredit this presumed Messiah. And yet this was the divine plan for the Son of God to be lifted up on a tree. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Say it with me. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2. Calvin says, indeed, if we wish to read with advantage the history of Christ's death, the chief point is to consider the eternal purpose of God. The Son of God is placed before the tribunal of mere mortal men. And if we suppose that this is done by the caprice of men and do not raise our eyes to God, our faith must necessarily be confounded and put to shame. But when we perceive that by the condemnation of Christ, our condemnation before God is blotted out because it pleased the Heavenly Father to take this method of reconciling mankind to himself, raised on high by this single consideration that we boldly and without glory, without shame, glory, even in Christ's ignominy, his shame. We serve a crucified Lord that should stamp our understanding of the church and of life. Let us therefore learn in each part of this narrative to turn our eyes to God as the author of our redemption. End quote Calvin. Well, verse 33 through 38. Pilate is very direct in his question to Jesus. Are you he could cut through the fog. Are you the king of the Jews? Christ returns the question, though, with a question. Did that strike you? I hope it did, because it sure struck me. Christ does not answer him direct. Christ returns the question put to him with a question. Application, it is far better to learn who and what you are dealing with than it is to immediately share your thoughts and knowledge. Listen first. Listen first so that what you say may have wisdom in it, 
meet the need of the moment and give grace to the one hearing. Well, doctrine. We shift to doctrine. First, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's a flat statement, verse 36. Says it twice, 36. My kingdom is not of this realm, not of this world. And while this defense was made by Christ before Pilate, the same doctrine is useful to believers to the end of the world. Calvin says, I quote, The kingdom of Christ, if it were earthly, it would be frail and changeable, malleable, transforming, constantly undergoing change, because the form of this world passeth away. But since it is pronounced to be heavenly, this assures us of its perpetuity, that it will perpetually remain the same. Thus should it happen that the whole world were overturned, provided that our consciences are always directed to the kingdom of Christ, they will remain firm, not only amidst shakings and convulsions, but even amidst dreadful ruin and destruction. If we are cruelly treated by wicked men, still, still, our salvation is secured by the kingdom of Christ, which is not subject to the caprice of men. And though there are innumerable storms by which the world is continually agitated, as a boy, I grew up in a world that was not agitated at all like the world we now live in. Continual agitation. The kingdom of Christ in which we ought to seek tranquility is separated from the world, end quote. Now I quote another wiser than me. Listen to it carefully. Your rock doth not ebb and flow, but your sea. Tied in, tied out, ebb and flow. That's not your rock that's doing that. It's the sea in which your rock is planted, and the rock is Jesus Christ. But your sea, your circumstances, your job, your relationships, your health can ebb and flow, but not your rock, just your sea. <clears throat> Another statement that, that helps me. My shallow and ebb thoughts. Now what's an ebb? Ebb and flow. When it flows, it's high tide. When it ebbs, it's low tide. My shallow and ebb thoughts are not the compass Christ saileth by. Boy, am I glad. <laughs> I'm glad he doesn't sail by my assessments. I leave his ways to himself for they are far, far above me, end quote. Second doctrine, and here we justify the title of the sermon, the threefold offices of Christ. 
Observe verse 37 in light of verse 36. I said that right. Observe verse 37 in light of verse 36. Pilate asked Jesus, are you, are you not the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, verse 36, says it twice, my kingdom is not of this realm. But then verse 37, Pilate, so you are a king. Jesus responds, yes. Yes, I am a king. And for this I have been born. And for this I have come. into the world. Clearly, clearly, the doctrine concerning Christ's kingdom and the doctrine concerning Christ as king is of no ordinary importance since Christ deemed it worthy of so solemn an affirmation. And accordingly, the Westminster Shorter Catechism takes this into account. And I will cite, I think I've said it before, but some of us forget. It is strongly suggested with evidence for it that Samuel Rutherford penned, wrote the Shorter Catechism. Here's the Shorter Catechism. Question 23. What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer. Now, any high schooler that can now cite the exact answer gets three pieces of pie at the picnic today. Do I have a taker? Answer. Christ, as our Redeemer, executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. Question 24. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. <laughs> so nicely terse and succinct, not at all like the larger catechism, is it called? <laughs> Question 25. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer, Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconciled us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Question 26. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a king first in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Behold briefly Christ's prophetic office. Early in John's gospel, the Jews had asked the Baptist, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
For Moses, 1,500 years prior, had said, Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Listen to him. In fact, you will remember John 6, following the feeding of the 5,000, the people said, This is of a truth the prophet who was to come. And Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come, take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So John 6, 14 and 15 links the perception of the people that here is the prophet with he is to become our king. And while they erred on the application of both, perhaps most exceptionally erring on his kingship, what his kingship was all about is the discussion with Pilate and what it reveals. Nevertheless, in John 6, Jesus is being recognized Prophetic office, kingly office. Behold Christ's priestly office. This gospel begins early with John's recognition saying, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And the very next day he again, Behold the Lamb of God. And our thoughts go back to the unblemished lambs that once a year at Passover, each Jewish household would slit the lamb's neck, catch the blood, sprinkle it over the door that the angel of death might pass over. We remember the provision of a ram by God to Abraham as a substitution for Isaac. And in John 12, Christ references his soul becoming troubled, and he prays to his father, Father, save me for the, from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And he then says, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of the world shall be cast out, and I... If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Christ clearly references his death, saying, This is my body, this is my blood. Hebrews 6 and 9 speaks profoundly here. Chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And Hebrews 7, 19 and 20, this hope, this hope, dear believer, we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Incredibly, Christ begins his priestly office offering sacrifice, but the sacrifice was himself. And so the Christmas hymn says it well. 
came and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia. Behold, lastly, his kingly office. And here it will help if you all view this through the lens of progressive revelation. First, Christ's prophetic office is revealed in his teaching and exposition. And you'll recall this is what Annas wanted to know, what you've been teaching. Second, Christ's priestly office is referenced repeatedly in the gospel from the declaration, Behold the Lamb of God, to Christ saying, I'll be lifted up. But his priestly office is not firmly established until he has offered himself through the eternal spirit unto God as a blood sacrifice without blemish. And thus he has become our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Third, Christ's kingly office is virtually hidden in the Gospels. It used to puzzle me. Okay, there's the threefold offices of Christ. But the offices of Christ, the priestly office seems to just predominate the Gospels, and so it does. It's because the kingly office of Christ predominates our existence in heaven forever. Christ's kingly office virtually hidden in the God, this Gospel yet breaks forth in Nathaniel's declaration in the people's recognition and desire of John 6, and in Pilate's questioning of Christ. But listen to this description from Revelation 19 as pertains to his kingly office. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes a flame of fire, on his head many diadems. And he has a name written, which no one knows except himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white, clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. My friend, have you bent the knee before him as your king, saying, My Lord and my God, have mercy on me, the sinner. It's eternally significant for you. Every knee shall bow. His children will bend the knee in rapturous eternal joy on that great day. 
those who have not come to him as Lord God and Savior will bend the knee in horrified, eternal terror. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you have established a beautiful scheme of redemption. By the sending of your son, you first, he blossomed as the prophet foretold by Moses. He spoke truth. The people hungered for it. They, they drank in the Sermon on the Mount as he exposited the law. We thank you. You established him as our high priest, but first as our sacrifice. And we praise you that he is in heaven at thy right hand, interceding for us, and we are in him. You see us in him. Now we pray for the day. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. We pray for the day when you will send him back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Our knees have bowed, but we will bow again and again and again throughout eternity. Father, we love you. Jesus, we worship you. Spirit of God, come and minister in our midst. Touch the heart. Bend the knee to Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.